0: Somebody's making billions of dollars and it's not me. But you're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This year is David Hansen. David, at long last, we got the results from Sunday's Invest in Yourself 5K at the Berkshire Hathaway Annual Weekend mm-hmm. Meeting, Meeting Weekend, something like that. Yes. You, sir, top 10% of all runners, better than top 10%. That of sounds all better than saying
1: 183.
0: Well, <laughs> so there are 20 you. there are 2200 runners. You smoked it. Just Nice barely. job. Nice. What well, were you? I was I was number 10. There you go. So we're I'm we're basically 10%. equal. Basically 10%, equal. 10%. 10%, 10, same thing. Rounding error. On that note, let's get to the headlines for today. First headline of the day. We're talking about a little Visa and Mastercard here. The headline is the biggest loser from Russia sanctions. Mm-hmm. Visa David, Visa and MasterCard, Russia. I don't think most people are putting two and two together. What's going on here?
1: So Visa and MasterCard, they do a fair amount of business in Russia. I think the, the article said they, hold, they handle 90% of the transaction, the credit card transactions. That's a
0: lot for Russia. those not good with numbers, that's, 90%. That's
1: fairly high. And I think that's similar to what they, the market share they have here, right? Isn't it around
0: 90%? I
1: roughly. So, so a, big part of, a big part of the business now, and now we have U.S. sanctions with Russia. We're not going to get into the whole political Side of this, but basically Russia is saying, "Well, if you guys want to keep doing business in our country, then you're gonna to have to start playing by our rules now. You're gonna to have to put a big deposit down with our central bank if you want to keep uh, doing transactions here." Visa and Mastercard not entirely thrilled about that, so they're trying to gauge how much are we gonna to have to deposit with the Russian central bank here as collateral to do transactions. So they're trying to decide if it's worth it. Uh, so that's for internal. Uh, transactions in Russia. So Russian consumer, Russian merchant, they would have to do that. Mm-hmm. The sanctions may allow them to still have a Russian consumer do cross-border payments, which is more profitable for Visa and MasterCard. I think it's 10x the yield uh, for a cross-border payment here. So they still may be able to do that, but maybe not uh, in the in the country itself. might be interesting to see if this has a ripple effect, because Russia is coming out and saying, hey, maybe we'll build our own Payments network similar to China. You've talked about Union Pay's right. monopoly in China and how Visa and MasterCard can't really gain entrance into there because it's a, a They're getting state in. It's run. just it's
0: a very it's a slow process. It's a difficult process.
1: So Russia may be building their own payments nec- network here. That would be at the, the cost of the Russian civilians there, the taxpayers. So it'd be some short-term pain there, but maybe a long-term profitability here. So just a slight risk. Visa and MasterCard going forward if other countries start to realize, hey, maybe we should have our own network. Maybe that's really Mm -hmm. profitable for China, Mm -hmm. really profitable for Russia. So just slight international risk here. I wouldn't be freaking out, but definitely something to keep an eye on.
0: All right. Next headline. Second headline.
1: Talking, Talking those billions that you mentioned in the intro, David Tepper ranks as best paid hedge fund manager. Again I mean three point five three
0: point five billion dollars.
1: say that again, three point five billion dollars in
0: one year That's with a B that's a B b billion dollars you, one thing that I'll say right off the top here, before, who is before David we Tepper? Get, he, he run, well before we get to before we get to David Tepper at all, really, we hear a lot about executives getting paid too much. We're we're in the financial sector. We cover the financial sector, so we hear a lot about financial sector CEOs getting Mm -hmm. paid too much. Bank CEOs getting paid too much. Was it eighteen, nineteen, twenty million dollars that that Citigroup's uh, new CEO got last year? I think around that, yeah, maybe even twelve. So that versus three point five billion. This is this is a scope so far away. It, It just. It blows my mind. I can't I I don't even know what to say about it.
1: Well that's not necessarily unfair though, right? I mean Citigroup has shareholders that the company is run for, and you you look at a hedge fund started by a small group of people who run it for themselves,
0: it's a little bit different. It's a more profitable operation, but still three point five billion versus twenty million. A lot. And and when when you think about the the importance of the the two operations, now we'll get to who David Tepper is. David Tepper runs Appaloosa Capital, a hedge fund. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you think about the the importance of these those kind of organizations versus the banks that are serving customers and everything like that, I don't know, I don't know. The, Tepper's performance, Te- Te- Tepper's pay was based on performance. That's how it goes in the hedge fund world. So that's the, that's the other side of it. They get paid very, very well when their hedge funds do well. It's not, quite as, it's not unattractive, even if they don't do well. Let's, mm-hmm. just, let's put that on the table. They're probably still making more yeah. than, the, than the big bank CEOs, oh, yeah. even when their hedge funds are not doing well. But when they do well, make a whole lot of money. And for Tepper, a big part of that last year was his bets on airline companies. Airline companies, if you're a value investor, follower of Warren Buffett, you probably are nowhere near them. However, the industry as a whole tends to have very large Mm -hmm. cyclical movements. So if you're on the right side of the airline companies when they're about to go up, you can do quite well. Financials, though, the, the top position, the number one position at Appaloosa in terms of individual stocks is? Citigroup. Indeed, so uh, another fan of Citigroup there, AIG also part of the Apple portfolio. Not quite as big, well, not nearly as big as the Citigroup position, but I think it's a 150 million in that kind of range, 150 million dollar position. For comparison, I think the Citigroup position is around 750 million, maybe closer to 800 million.
1: Right, uh, and I went back and looked to see when they started accumulating that Citigroup stake, and it looked like it was the summer of 2012, that quarter there. Um, haven't been adding too much to it so kind of just a hold maybe they're a little not as comfortable with the valuation today cuz it has moved up it's still not expensive quote but it wasn't based on the recommendation of this show though it wasn't
0: unfortunately maybe next time maybe, maybe next big buy maybe next time i'm sure i'm sure tepper is watching this show why wouldn't he why <laughs> exactly third headline we're going to deal book for the headline financial data company market files for ipo i think this David, could be a, a pretty exciting IPO. Market is a, it's hard to describe, it's a little hard to describe what exactly market is. For, for part of its business, it is very much like Bloomberg. It's like cap, uh, S&P's Capital IQ. It provides financial data. Mm-hmm. And what I know market, and what maybe a lot of other investors are most familiar with market for, is for their information on derivatives. They enter the market through um, CDO's, CDS's, Pricing those, distributing information on those, and the, the way they did that is they got banks to give them pricing information, and they wouldn't redistribute that information to other banks unless they were part of the network. Mm-hmm. So this helped banks better price exotic, tough to price assets like CDOs, CDSs, that sort of thing. And the banks have a have a stake in. This they, company do. As well, they do. They right? do. Goldman Sachs, I know, is is one JP investor. Morgan. JP Morgan is another investor. So it's the banks right now. It's the banks. It's the employees at market. And then I think some select outside investors who are the current investors. It's also Temasek, okay. Temasek, the uh, state-owned investment fund in Singapore, also recently invested in, at a five billion dollar valuation. So market's going to come come to the market. Market's going to come to the market. Market uh, to the market. Part of part of the business, like I said, that data uh, providing, but also they do a lot of back office work for banks, and this is this is really important as banks are starting to deal with a lot of the, we'll call it fallout from the Dodd-Frank reforms, from the the new banking regulations, there's more back office paperwork that needs to be done. And if there is an outsourced provider who can do a good job with that, that may be a good option for a lot of banks to use somebody like market rather than trying to take it on themselves. So I haven't been too excited about recent IPOs, but market I think is more exciting than, than most of them valuation of course will be we'll need to keep yeah. an eye on that because it probably won't come out at a particularly attractive valuation but who knows
1: and it's kind of anecdotal but there have been successful companies that were kind of bank owned and spun off into a public company and done quite well for instance so, visa there you go
0: now onto the focus this this is this is a headline but I think it's a headline worth a little bit more exploration we're talking AIG here AIG reported earnings yesterday and earnings were down. After the market, I didn't check. I didn't actually get a chance to check it this morning. But after the market yesterday, stock was looking a little sickly. Yeah, well, whatever. After earnings report. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Um, it sounds like you have a. Did you Did you take a look at it? It Sounds like yeah. you have a rea- reaction to it. What's your? That was yeah.
1: pretty strong. Whatever. It was a whatever. I mean, it wasn't a, a home run quarter, but it certainly. It wasn't. It wasn't a, it wasn't a really good quarter. It was a standard quarter. It was a quarter from what you would expect a, an insurance company that's trading at a 30% discount to its book value, I think. I think that's what how I would categorize it. They continue to underwrite okay, uh, swung to a, a combined ratio over 100, mm-hmm. so not underwriting profitably this quarter. But the comp that they were jumping over... From the first quarter of last year was their best quarter, and I think in the last year or so, or a couple of years. So the year-over-year year comparison was a little bit tough here.
0: And so it's it's important to, to point out that whenever we're talking about insurance companies, particularly those that are, if you're talking about an auto insurance company, an Allstate, something like that, they are writing insurance that's that's fairly predictable, fairly standard. It's short tail, so. If you have a big change, any sort of big change in combined ratio, combined ratio, of course, is the profitability Mm -hmm. of the the insurance that's been written. If you have a big change in combined ratio, that's maybe a little bit worrisome. But for any insurance company that's exposed to um, longer tail insurance, that means insurance where you write it today and then what you may be paying out may not come for a number of years, also catastrophe insurance, which is, a little bit less predictable, mm-hmm. it, it comes one year, it doesn't come at all next year, that sort of thing, those results can swing a lot from one year to the next, from one quarter to the next. So you don't want to look at one quarter and say, well, the combined ratio is much higher than it was last year or last quarter, and therefore the company's doing much worse. Yeah. So I wouldn't take away, I, I don't think we can say for sure that, that it's that the underwriting and is all the way back to where historical AIG was yet, mm-hmm. but I don't think we can look at this quarter and say, "Well, they tipped over a hundred percent combined ratio, meaning that the insurance uh, was was unprofitable, the underwriting was unprofitable," and say, "Well, obviously they're terrible again." Mm-hmm. That's I don't think that's. Peter the Hancock said that on the on the call as well. The guy in charge of the
1: PNC. Uh, segment and, and the guy, said, I think, most likely to take over for Robert Ben Moshe. He was like, we don't look at
0: one quarter of, of underwriting as a trend
1: at all. That's silly.
0: Right. Uh, meanwhile, book value per share minus com- the, the, the effects of comprehensive income grew 10% year over year. I think without the, the AOCI adjustment, it was 6, 7%, 6%, 7%, something like that. Uh, and like you mentioned, AIG is still trading at about a 30, 20, 25 30% discount to its book value and we got to remember that it's hitting these results in a low interest rate environment which is challenging for an insurance company because particularly AIG because AIG most of its the the, the vast majority of its investments are in fixed income. Yeah. So we think about Markel which is an especially insurer that we talk about a lot there's much more of that portfolio in equity securities so they can navigate a low interest rate environment, a little bit better maybe than than in AIG, which is doesn't have that big equity portfolio. I'll also point out that I see value in AIG shares. I think you see value in AIG shares. AIG apparently also sees value in AIG shares. Repurchased nearly 900 million mm-hmm. of shares in the first quarter. And from my perspective as a shareholder, I am very happy to see them continue to do that as long as the valuation stays where it is.
1: And uh, the sale of ILFC, the plain le- leasing unit, finally got approval that should go through in this next quarter there. And uh, there was a question on the call saying, hey, why aren't you guys buying back more shares? I mean, we just said they think it's cheap, uh, you're going to get cash from the sale there, why don't you put that to use and buy back more shares? They said, hey, we agree with you, I think the stock is cheap, but we weren't going to go try to buy back shares with a contingent funding yet. They wanted full approval, they didn't want to get out there, and something happened to the deal. And then they can't have the cash to buy back the shares. So hopefully, once they get that, I think it's $2.5 billion in cash up front, they may be able to put that to buying back shares. So, in this as well.
0: upcoming quarter, we could be seeing a whole lot more share buybacks.
1: I think they have, they have their authorization to buy back shares, which is.
0: Or we could, some, we could I yeah. think it's another $300 billion a, that they yeah, have. Yeah, it could, in could their
1: be another announcement that they're upping the authorization once they have that cash. So, we could see more share
0: buybacks. All right. We have an email address. That email address is wtmi at fool.com. We love to get questions from our listeners. And as we mentioned yesterday, we got to meet so many of our great listeners over the Berkshire weekend. Uh, we always love to hear from the people uh, tuning into the show. The question from today comes from, uh, I think, a couple or a few weeks back. It's from uh, Karsten out in Hamburg, Germany, mm-hmm. emailing us all the way from Hamburg. I actually had a chance to, to chat with Karsten this morning. It was a, it was a great chat. The question was around a segment we did that talked about who will, who, who will uh, benefit most from rising interest rates. And it was around the baby Berkshires. So um, we're talking about Lucadia. In this case, per Carson's question, mostly Lucadia and Markel. Yep. And we had said we, we thought that Markel would benefit more from rising interest rates. And Carson made a good point that when interest rates rise no matter how short-term your bond portfolio is, if you have a big bond portfolio versus if you don't have much of a bond portfolio, the, the, the one with the big bond portfolio is going to do worse yeah. in the short term because as interest rates go up, bond prices go yep. down. And that's a good point. And that's a correct point. And I, just, I think we were approaching it from a little bit of a different perspective. So Lucadia, without the insurance bond portfolio that Markel has, in the short term, won't see the hit to AOCI as we were just yeah. accumulating other comprehensive income as we were just talking about with AIG. But from a benefit perspective, from a longer-term benefit perspective, the company without the bond portfolio doesn't necessarily benefit from those rising rates, whereas mm-hmm. Markel and AIG and other insurers, as interest rates rise, as they get past that initial uh, loss from the, from, from the uh, prices of the current bond portfolio... Um, they will benefit from being able to collect those higher yields on their on their fixed income. Right,
1: and I think we are approaching it from maybe not who benefits more, but who is more impacted by the interest rate environment. And it it probably is Markel. And the reason that they are is because they're an insurer. They need to have they need to have fixed income to for liquidity purposes to for capital reliable, purposes. Yeah, it li- needs to be reliable. Yeah. Lucadia is not. A big insurance company like Markel, its big operation is an investment bank, and then it has all these other side businesses there. So it doesn't have the same need to have a a bond portfolio that it can quickly access capital if it needs to. So it's just a little bit of a different business there. Um, And I I can't imagine that Lucadia, even if rates were higher, they would suddenly shift a lot of their capital into bonds just because that's not really what their business is.
0: Now, where Lucadia could benefit now that they own Jefferies is that if let's not call it necessarily just rising interest rates, but just interest rate volatility in general. If that sparks more bond trading, Jeffries would, Jeffries would benefit right. from that. Lucadia would benefit from that. So I think that's a good point that Carson brought up. Um, so, so Markel and other insurers, short term would feel some pain if interest rates rose from the bond, uh, on the prices on the bond portfolio. would take a hit. But over the longer term, I think that they would benefit from, uh, from getting those higher yields. Yep. Finishing off the day in the Twitter sphere, David, what is the first tweet?
1: Number one, got it from Eddie Elfenbein. He says, "Successful invest- investing is one of the few endeavors in which people are convinced it must be more complicated than it truly is." That's what we talked about yesterday. He must be.
0: Watching. That is, he must be. What I hope Eddie is. What I really like Eddie Elfenbein. I think he has got some some really great great tweets. I think for any of our listeners who aren't already following him on Twitter, go ahead and follow him. I think he's got some a lot of wisdom. Mm-hmm. A lot of wisdom. And, and and i say and i say that uh with a lot of weight behind it and and that's a i mean we were talking about it got yesterday buffett, so got obviously buffett munger <laughs> tom
1: gainer and Eddie now he's in a great company <laughs> great company now
0: yeah great company uh but yeah i i think it's a great point i the best investing if you if you li- if you listen to what buffett says if you listen to what gainer says if you listen to what munger says and don't try to read too much into it it's straightforward it's it's common sense but it's long-term, it's slow, it's difficult, um, and I think that's why a lot of people don't do it. They want, they want the more complicated, short-term quick fix. It's like that AT&T commercial. We want it now. Yeah. We want more. Yeah, with the little kids. Yeah. We're, we're all still those little kids that want to be faster, that want to have more. Mm-hmm. What, can you, what do you expect? Yeah. Second tweet. J.P. Morgan's Diamond sees Facebook and Google... As a threat to banks. This is something else, David, that we've also talked about on this show. Uh, the, the payments industry, the, the, the banking industry is changing. It's becoming easier for online players to, to get into it. Do you think Jamie Dimon really has something to, to worry about?
1: I don't think he does because he called out, he was, Google does not want to be a regulated bank. No. Nobody wakes up in the morning you're like, God, I just want to but start a regulated private, they bank. they can private label it, though. They could private label it, which brings me to the point, is it possible that we could see in the future J.P. Morgan partner with Facebook I, on some things? I mean, we, we we don't need to look at everything in a silo and saying that Facebook will do their thing and it completely hurts J.P. Morgan. I mean, J.P. Morgan has a lot of expertise.
0: Now, now here's, here's an interesting and, question. Does... Facebook partnering, or does Google, let's say Google, this is even better. Does Google partnering with J.P. Morgan to offer financial products hurt Google's brand? I don't think it would. Really? No. Interesting. Okay. All right.
1: Third tweet? Third tweet. The best tweet of the day. From (laughs) Historical Picks, at Historical Picks, happy 53rd birthday to George Clooney. we got a picture of young George Clooney here. Whoa. Looks like a young John Stamos.
0: You know what he looks like? He looks like he belongs in Saved by the Bell. Yeah, couldn't you or Full
1: it? House? He looks like John Stamos. Oh full yes, house. yes, that's even better. Those eyebrows are like
0: furry caterpillars, <laughs> <laughs> in a good way. S- such a good-looking man, though. Such a good-looking man. I'm sure George is watching this. It's a very happy birthday, George. Mm-hmm. We appreciate you continuing to watch WTMI. And if you ever want to be on the show and come talk stocks with us, favorite happy- George Clooney movie? Putting you on the spot. Um, I'm going to say. I don't know, Men Who Stare at Goats. I've never seen it. I heard You've that never seen was, it? Yeah. It, 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 was, it wasn't that good, but it's just so goofy. I like seeing George Clooney in those roles. Uh, what was it, Up in the Air? Yeah, that was Also good.
1: really, really good. And that one where he's a lawyer, Michael Clayton?
0: Mm, I, I think I've seen it, but it's been a long time. Check it out. I see out. a lot of movies. You're though. a little senile now. A,
1: just, a <laughs> li- just a little bit. Are you 53,
0: too? Maybe. <laughs> I don't think you get fi- senile at 53. Some. I think he's got some, some time left. All right, well, that's our show for today. I'm Matt Kopeneffer. This is David Hanson. You can find us on Twitter, at TMF Financials. And if you're still watching on video, or if you're watching on video, I should say still, look us up on iTunes. Uh, you can find the audio version of the podcast there, so you can listen to it on your commute. That's all we have. We'll see you tomorrow.
1: People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have
0: formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.